Hello and welcome once again to Rasslin Memories on Pioneer 90.1 FM, KSRQ, Thief River Falls. We're available beyond the FM dial. Of course, we stream our audio worldwide to the masses at radionorthland.org, radionorthland.org. And uh, you can listen to us live and in the moment as well on TuneIn. But if you uh, just so happen to miss you know, a part of the show, if you're listening live and you came in 20 minutes late or whatever the case may be, or you missed it altogether, don't fret for one moment because we have these episodes available up at radionorthland.org slash wrestling memories so we have plenty of wrestling memories then and now episodes from uh, we're well into our eighth season now here on 90.1 fm i'm glenn Broggett, along with my co-host way down there deep in the heart of texas uh, enjoying a nice uh, late august day as we are uh, taping the program uh, enjoying his sweet tea He's having a good old time, and it's good to have him back, and he is ready to go. We got such a good guest today. He's excited to be back. I'm always uh, happy to have him here. Mike McCurdy, the grizzled vet himself. Mike, how are you, my friend? I'm doing great, man. Like you said, relaxing a little bit, got a little cup of sweet tea, and got a great guest. Yes. Talked to them just a minute before we started recording, and I did not know just how much of a fan I was of this guest until I was going through the book and realized just everything he's done. Oh, so I'm really looking forward to this one, man. This is going to be one of those shows that this is one of the fun ones. This is bringing out like the kid in me. This is bringing out the fans. It's going to be hard to be the grizzled vet and ask the hard-hitting questions because I just want to ask about all the fun stuff. And this is what it's going to be all about, the fun stuff. I mean, this. I mean, we, we talk about all of the music of, in pro wrestling, especially with the WWF in the mid to late 80s. I mean, when you think about some of the most classic themes, even the early 90s as well, some of those classic themes, you know, when you hear the honky-tonk man's cool, cocky, bad, you know, demolition, you hear, uh, you know, various other, you know, stuff, like Ted, Ted DiBiase's money, money, money. Uh, this guy was behind him. He worked with Jimmy Hart. I mean, he's done some good, good stuff, so... We kind of get to reveal the man behind the curtain on this edition, Mike. Oh, definitely, man. And what you said, that just kind of scratches the surface. Just the names I read, you know, our guest actually knew and met, got to see Prince rehearse. Yeah, that's pretty impressive. A rehearsal with Prince before he was Prince. This is in the beginning days. And, oh, man, that, that one right there absolutely amazed me. Well, so he was- I am so looking forward to this, man. Oh, for sure, for sure. And he's here today to discuss uh, a book that he recently uh, was recently released here that he uh, about his life, uh, you know, not just in pro wrestling, the music business. This guy has so many good things. He dipped, dipped his toes in so many spots. It's so cool. It's called My Life in Heaven Town. And he put it together with a friend of the show, John Cosper. John Cosper, great writer, also uh, responsible for EatSleepWrestle.com. He has put out countless books uh, through the years here that we've had, uh, you know, get various guests on the pro program and we've had john on himself so this is just uh, another uh, i think another home run for john cosper don't you think mike oh definitely you know definitely uh, i'm looking forward to as soon as we're done with this interview i'm actually gonna you know sit down and you know read the rest of this book Oh man, I loved it from the moment I read it a couple of weeks back, and boy, I was I was just didn't want to put it down. It was a hard to put down book. It was one of those books that you could, if you had the time, you could start to finish in in, in one day and and leave and be left wanting more. That could because this guy's story is just so 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 fascinating. And I'd like to welcome him to the program. We've been talking about him for so long. He's been waiting in the wing so patiently. He's Hurricane JJ McGuire, author of My Life in Heaven Town. Welcome to Rasslin Memory. Uh, JJ. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be here, guys. It really is. Thank you so much for all the kind words, really. 
Oh, and it's it, it's it's going to be uh, more where that came from here this hour as we get into talking about your your career and and your book, of course, my life in Heaven Town. But before we get into your your backstory, I really want to talk about the release of the book. And uh, John Cosper, I mentioned, uh, who was a friend to the program. John's just a great guy, a real go getter as far as uh, pro wrestling and just in life in general. But he's been doing so many good good projects for in pro in the field of pro wrestling through the years. And he put together this book with you. And let's talk about how you got. You know, finally, you decided. You know, hey man, I'm going to put my story, going to put it to print. I'm going to tell the world my my story in a book. What made you decide to to get together with John and and, and put together this? Because man, I, I I can't thank you enough for putting it together. But what what made you decide to hey, I'm going to put this together and I'm going to make a book? Well, uh, quite a few years had gone by since you know we had done a lot of the iconic music and everything, and I was just kind of sitting around. Of course, I got married and had some kids and. I thought, well, what a great role, uh, you know, doing all the music for uh, most of the majority of the music uh, from for WWF and WWE and also WCW. But uh, uh, my son came home. I have a 14-year-old son at the time. He's 16 now and just started driving and ran into a guardrail the other night. So <laughs> if he's listening, son, you better pay closer attention. He came home from school one day, and uh, he said he had this long look on his face. And I said, son, what's wrong? And he said, well, nothing, Dad. He said, some of the kids at school are asking me if uh, my dad is that wrestling music man. Knowing what the kids at school, 14 years old, they, they even care, uh, have any idea, wonder about, you know, what this is. Uh, of course, that's all the beauty of the internet. If we didn't have the web and so forth, I don't think that the interest would have gone, uh, that far, uh, back and in and up and over. Uh, so I'm thankful for the internet in that regard. Uh, so uh, my son asked me, he said, would you please text these, this list of people? He gave me a list of about 20-something kids, and please tell them that it is true that you are the wrestling music man. I said, sure, I'll, I'll be glad to do that. <laughs> so I figured somebody, I figured somebody was interested in uh, maybe a broader scope of uh, what we had done and were doing uh, more than what I uh, thought, you know. So that's kind of, that, that got me going in gear, and then, uh, I did a, an appearance with uh, Robin Nelson, who's another uh, a podcast uh, kingpin friend of mine. He introduced me to uh, John Cosper, and John Cosper invited me to come to Richmond, Kentucky for a Comic-Con they had over there. So I said, sure, I'd be glad to do it. So I uh, pulled right over and uh, took my pictures and different things that I had, and that's where it kind of started. And, uh, and uh, myself, and as I call him, Gorgeous John Cosper, uh, he's what a beautiful person, you know, and how lucky for me to meet John and uh, someone who's such a walking encyclopedia of the history of wrestling as well and had many books out and does as well right now. But, <clears throat> uh, so we had a friendship, uh, started right there. And I actually started out with a great writer, a guy named Jim Phillips was interviewing me and, uh, starting on trying to compile and, uh, information for a book. But, uh, in the meantime, he had he writes for a thing called the Gorilla Position, which is another wrestling, oh yeah, uh, yeah. you know, site and so forth. And uh, he was real busy with a lot of assignments with that, and it was kind of taking a while. So then uh, John Cosper said, "Well, if you decide you want to do anything at all in the future after you do this with Jim Phillips, then let me know." And so uh, I got to thinking, well, you know, I'd like to get this book out as soon as possible, uh, you know, so. I called Jim and I said, Jim, uh, you know, you're a fabulous writer and everything, but you're so covered up with these other projects with Gorilla Position and everything. 
I'd like to get going a little faster. I think I'm going to try to do something else with the book. And I was, I was so nervous that it would upset him because we did spend uh, quite a few uh, hours, you know, compiling information, whatever, somewhat. But he told me he's such a great guy and understanding. He said, JJ, he said, I'm sorry that I can't move fast enough on the book, but uh, John Cosper, he's a great writer, and I'm just honored that you allowed me to try to work on a book for you. And, of course, uh, Jim had never done a book before. He told me I've never done a book, but let me tell you, he is a very eloquent writer as well as John. Uh, these guys are extremely talented and really a real uh, feather in the cap for the wrestling industry and uh, those that want to know where this all started and came from. So anyway, uh, in the, there's a opening in my book that, uh, Jim Phillips, uh, I, we, uh, kept what he wrote in regard to, uh, his, uh, you know, when he first met me and, and interviewing me, what he thought and everything. And, uh, he, he did a real nice uh, thing there in the book, which I'm sure you've already read. So <clears throat> I wish that I could have figured a way to have he and John's brain com combine into one brain <laughs> and do it all. But I'm, I'm really uh, thankful and grateful to uh, have uh, Jim Phillips uh, first uh, notice me and want to do something. And then also John Cosper, you know, to follow on through and get this book uh, out there. You know, there could be a possibility maybe sometime down the road that you could probably uh, put those two together and maybe work on another project because it seemed like uh, you have a lot of stories in the can and this was like a, a great little taste because I have a feeling that uh, you, you you probably have one or two stored back, uh, you know, in the attic that you didn't uh, get a chance to put here uh, in the first book. Oh, yeah, it would it would take, I could have filled four books. Uh, you know, I, I read the book and I go, oh, you know, I forgot to talk about the time that I met so-and-so or I did this or that. There was so much, there just wasn't room in one book to put everything. But I tried to put the most interesting things for people in the book. And, you know, the, the biggest icons that I was fortunate enough to work with and meet and be a part of. And uh, so that's kind of what we did. But, yes, that's correct. Uh, there's so much that's happened and gone on that it's, Unbelievable. I don't think we talked, I can't remember right offhand if we talked in the book about the number 13. Uh, the number 13 for me has just been the most miraculous number in the, in the universe. Uh, the day that uh, Jimmy Hart and I signed with our Performing Rights Society, CSAC, uh, was on that Black Friday in uh, the late 80s um, when people jumped off the buildings and lost all their you know, investments and everything, Black mm -hmm. Friday. But that was the day that Jimmy and I signed our big deal with uh, the Performing Rights Society, uh, CSAC. And uh, and believe it or not, we were sitting in, in uh, row 13, aisle seat 13, uh, uh, and window seat 13. Oh, my God. That is, that is, that is just crazy how that number and just I'm kept appearing, popping up. I'm appearing at Heroes and Legends in Fort Wayne at Heroes and Legends 13. <laughs> it's an inescapable thing, I guess, this, this number 13 with you, man. It is. It is. It's crazy, brother. This whole, my whole life has just been like a, one of those Twilight Zone episodes, except uh, it's not quite as odd as some of those episodes, but it's pretty odd in its own way. You've know. You you had, uh, I guess, a very interesting life. I mean, uh, this was just part of uh, one many of the many different things that have gone on in your life uh, that have kind of happened just kind of just kind of if the universe just wanted it to happen and we'll get into a little bit more of that but i want to talk uh, you know you mentioned jimmy hart and jimmy plays such a, a big role in your your existence as far as working in 
pro wrestling, but that goes uh, back even further uh, back to your days when, when Jimmy, you worked with Jimmy in the Gentries now in the uh, latter part of the Gentries, because by the time you ended up with the Gentries, it was in the early 1970s. But I want to talk a little bit about, cause Jimmy wrote the forward to your book and you know, Jimmy is just such an important figure, not only in pro wrestling, but it figured in your life well before the wrestling thing. So just how big and just how important Jimmy Hart weighs in on your life. I mean, in general. Oh, Jimmy Hart is, is a genius. First of all, he's a creative genius. It's beyond belief. And perhaps one, well, no, perhaps to it. He is one of the smartest people in wrestling that's ever lived period. But before wrestling, we were in the gentry. like we discussed a while ago. And, uh, the way that I met Jimmy was, is that I had a booking agent that booked a band that I was with from Lexington, Kentucky. And a couple of my friends who were in the hit group uh, Exile, who had out "I Want to Kiss You All Over," uh, you know, they were we were in the band together before they got in Exile. They got in Exile ultimately, and I got uh, in the Gentries. So uh, this booking agent that had booked our band from Lexington, uh, it's a group called Powder Keg. Uh, we went to Florida and played, and then we came back. Our bass player, who is now the bass player for the group uh, country pop group Exile, Sonny Lemaire. Uh, he had an offer to go to Las Vegas and do a duo thing with a friend of his and make some gigantic money. So he took off and left the band, and the band's kind of in a static state there, not knowing what to do. So uh, our agent, who had booked us on this tour in Florida in, in the band from Lexington, Powder Keg, uh, he called me. His name was Joe Powers, and Joe called and said, J.J.? He said, I'm sorry that the band uh, is trying to find some other members to replace Sonny. And, uh, and, uh, Marlon Hargis, also our keyboard player, he wound up joining another band and, uh, he's a keyboard player for exile also now. And, uh, so anyway, um, he said, you know, I just got a call from a guy named Jimmy Hart. Well, I didn't know Jimmy Hart from Jimmy smart, you know, uh, mm-hmm. nothing. And so, uh, he said, but I said, who is he? He said, well, he owns the name of the gentries. Oh, oh, wow. I said, really? I said, you know, I just saw the Gentry a couple of years ago, and I thought, you know, that's the type of band one day that I would love to play with. And here we go again, my life in heaven town. Two years after I made that statement at Toys for Tots at Freedom Hall in Louisville, Kentucky, which had the biggest audience that's ever been there in the history of the building still, came true. Two years later, I was playing with the Gentry's, but let me get back to where we, we were. Uh, so Joe Power said, call this number in Memphis. He gave me Jimmy's number. I called, and Jimmy answered. I said, Joe Powers, uh, our agent, uh, who had also booked the Gentry some, he gave me your number and told me to call. He said, you were looking for a drummer. And Jimmy said, yes, uh, but we have auditions all next week. We've got uh, Jerry Lee Lewis's, uh, which is Great Balls of Fire, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got his drummer auditioning, and then we have one of Ray Charles's drummers auditioning. So, you know, the competition is pretty stiff. And I said, well, I'll tell you what, Mr. Hart, what I'll do. I'll drive down there all at my expense to Memphis and bring my drums and I'll audition for you. But if you decide you don't want me, there's no problem is thank you for the opportunity. But, uh, I can tell you those guys are more, uh, rockabilly and, and uh, classic blues drummers. They're not progressive rock drummers like I am. So I think I have a good shot for you. So what do you think? He said, okay, if that's what you want to do. And I said, but here's the thing. If you take me, uh, and the gentries want me, then you'll pay half my expenditure for coming down there. He said, sounds good. We'll see you then. And that's really where it started. And so 
I drove down to Memphis that following Tuesday, and uh, Jimmy came over, and when he hit the door, like I said in the book, the door opened, and this guy, Jimmy Hart, looked like one of the Bay City Rollers. Now, I know there's a lot of listeners that go, who's that? Well, you guys can go look it up, and you'll see, but they wore these pants that were hijacked, looked like high-water flood bell bottoms, you know, that weren't long enough, and Jimmy had on a pair of pants like that that were checked, and you know, he looked great and everything, really, his image was fantastic, and I said, you know, I saw you guys two years ago at Toys for Tots when I was playing that same event with a, a, a top regional band. We had a record out regionally in Kentucky. We were on that same bill. And uh, he said, well, thanks a lot. And I said, boy, you guys are heavy. That, you know, I really like it when you went into the heavy music and whatever that you're doing. That's what I'm looking for. And so he said, well, it's nice to meet you. But we hit it off right there. We sat in the room there and talked for about three hours. And uh, that's where it all began with Jimmy Hart. Uh, the smartest man in wrestling better believe it. Yeah. Yeah. And it seemed like, you know, initially, because did you seem at all deterred from, from going down for that audition? Because Jimmy kind of put it out, you know, we, he was name dropping because he had some good hands that were in there. So he gave you a little bit of a competition kind of, well, cause he probably didn't know your full story because it must've been some sort of surprise when, when you came and did your thing, because this was something that you were ready to do. I mean, you were a musical prodigy as a young child. I mean, this was, you, you were in these bands already, but do you think you, he, he, you were kind of, he was kind of taken aback by, uh, you coming in there and kind of blowing away and finding uh, that right groove with the rest of the band? I think so. Uh, you know, he never, well, you never know what to expect, <clears throat> you know, in groups and so forth. You, you get some players that are great players, but they're flakes, you know, they don't show up on time or they have problems or so on and so forth. Uh, but uh, Jimmy always told people about me. He said one thing about McGuire, he said he's self-contained. He said he's always on time. He's always early. He always does the job. You know, I guess you kind of read by what Jimmy said in the forward of my book that, you know, he, I was the go-to guy for Jimmy and, uh, Jimmy, Jimmy's a fabulous singer, by the way. Uh, a lot of the wrestling public doesn't realize what a phenomenal singer that Jimmy is, uh, fantastic singer, one of the greatest ever. And not to mention that he's very athletic and Jimmy can do all sorts of things as you've seen through the years, uh, most colorful manager of all time, in my opinion. And that's what I tell him every time. I say, Jimmy, you're still colorful. But, uh, <laughs> Such a hard worker, too. I mean, this guy is in his 70s, oh, yes, and he is still going uh, like he's a guy he's in his 30s. Yes, and, and uh, Jimmy always says, come on, McGuire, let's get going. Let's go, let's go, let's go. He's always just, he's very much like the character. That's right, baby. Come on, baby. Let's go, baby. It's like that, you know, 24 hours a day, you know, with Jimmy. He never stops and still hasn't. And I just spent some time with him down in Florida. Uh, a few months back, and uh, wow, I mean, Jimmy's still running around like he's like he was the day that I met him, essentially. I mean, and and I do too. Uh, I still run around like somebody probably about thirty five years old, even though I'm not. But uh, you know, having music uh, is really a blessing, and uh, God gave me that talent. And so, you know, like I said in my book, so I took it to the greatest show on earth and traveled the world with the greatest of all time. Uh, unbelievably entertain people of color in all walks of life and who knew that wrestling is such a powerful force oh ab absolutely I, I mean even before wrestling i mean when you got with jimmy hart and the gentries i mean it was so cool i mean just to hear about some of the places that you guys went on tour and some of the people you played with i mean this was uh you yeah. know you look back at guys i mean even beforehand you had a, a reference in the book about playing a show with dr hook uh and i know my co-host mike loves uh, dr hook so i had to bring up dr hook but even with the gentries you played uh, gigs with chicago and steppenwolf and you've played 
and clubs with so many interesting characters. I mean, this was the life of a traveling rock and roll band and a, a band like the Gentries that uh, kind of you know changed the image up a little bit from uh, Keep On Dancing in the mid to late 1960s because right around the time you jumped aboard, you guys recorded a, a pretty cool cover of Neil Young's Cinnamon Girls. So can you talk a little bit about you know playing on the road with the Gentries, some of these great these great bands uh, that you were supporting, but also making some stuff in the studio and, and turning a different corner with the band's overall sound. Well, we were really lucky because uh, the main studio that we worked out of was Phillips Recording, and that's the immortal Sam Phillips, of course, Elvis fame. And I got to meet Sam and spend time with Sam and talk to him one-to-one. And What a beautiful person Sam was. Uh, you know, in his latter part of his life, he became a, an evangelist, and, you know, he preached and so forth. But we had to, every time we went down to record, we had to pray before we got started, and we had to pray when we finished. And uh, Sam would, you know, hold our hands and say a prayer and ask to, you know, bless the session and so forth. And what an experience uh, meeting and getting to know Sam Phillips. Wow. I mean, that's just another part of my life in Heaventown, another example. Uh, But uh, like I say, we did most of our recording down there at Phillips Recording. Uh, The Sun Studio was just, as you know, a small studio. uh, And from all the money that Sam made, you know, with Elvis and everything, he... Uh, built a bigger world-class studio on Adams Avenue down there in Memphis called Phillips Recording. And his son, Sam, was our uh, actual uh, producer. Uh, The executive producer, of course, was Sam Phillips, but his son, Knox, excuse me, Knox Phillips, was the on-board and hands-on the console, you know, guy that did all our recordings Mm -hmm. and so forth. But I met all sorts of celebrities. I met John Prine while we were recording down there uh, in the 70s. uh, Mac Davis, uh, just all sorts of people coming and going down there. You know, that's a the Rolling Stones recorded some at Phillips Recording. I mean, it's uh, if you want to look it up, uh, the fans, you know, it's really interesting stuff. And uh, I was happy that I got to have a chance to uh, do music in Memphis because that's really the heart and soul of most modern music in America is, uh, you know, the Beale Street sound and Memphis and all that. So. That's where it all kind of began, and we started rolling right there. And, and once uh, you get Jimmy Hart and, and J.J. McGuire rolling, there's no stopping. All right, uh, J.J., Hurricane J.J. McGuire, My Life in Heaventown. It's a great book. And now in with the hot tag is the grizzled vet, Mike McCurdy. Mike, you ready to roll, my friend? Oh, of course, man, always, always. Um, <clears throat> like I said, I'm very happy to have him on as a guest today because, you know, just going through the book, you know, just reading some of the names, I just kind of want to ask about names that are in the book. I just want to hear some stories. That's kind of what I'm wanting to do tonight, really. But one thing, you know, and Glenn did mention this, I am a Dr. Hook fan. Love Dr. Hook. think they've got some of the greatest song titles in history. But, you know, you got a chance to, when you were with Sounds Unlimited, you got a chance to uh, play some shows with Dr. Hook. So I was wondering maybe, you know, you got any, like, you know, little stories about getting to play with Dr. Hook, maybe a little behind-the-curtain type of thing? Because, you know, like I said, I am oh, yeah. a fan. Sure. Uh, how exciting! You know, they just had uh, you know a couple of the biggest hits that you ever were at the time. And uh, <laughs> excuse me, <clears throat> pardon me. And uh, well, when they they said we've got an opening job for Doctor Hook in the Medicine Show, I went, "Oh wow, man! These guys are superstars." Well, here's the thing: they already had a route of uh, gigs booked. You know, it's at high schools and college venues and stuff that weren't really gigantic. You know, Madison Square size rooms to play but they they were nice guys and they were honored their 
prior commitments, uh, they didn't realize they were going to become such big stars so quick. So they did, and they did some of these smaller gigs, so to speak, for them. And we got the call, and I was just thrilled to death, and they were fabulous. They, they're live, man. I never forget that uh, the bass player, he was something phenomenal. I mean, the whole band was phenomenal. They could actually play any kind of music and do it greatly. And, uh, uh, and of course, uh, you know, their, their, their presentation was formidable, too. But uh, we were just kids, man. I wasn't even old enough to drive. I think I was like 14 or something, you know, at that time. And uh, 14 or 15. And uh, that was just a real feather in a cap for our band, The Sounds Unlimited, of course. And uh, once we did that gig with uh, Dr. Hook and the guys, uh, we got with the top agency in Kentucky overnight. And, uh, you know, we played every every school and college and uh Catholic high school in Kentucky that exists uh, in the Sounds Unlimited. We were the top prom band in those years, you know, what they called a prom band. We had all the prom gig- gigs. But, yeah, Dr. Hook and the guys were really something, and they were formidable. They were a formidable, formidable act. That's all I can tell you. Um, another one, another name I'd like to uh, kind of bring over. You actually have a chapter devoted to this guy. And this one's kind of also, you know, a little personal for me because, Obviously, you know, not my my age range, but my father was a huge fan of this man, and that was uh, Jackie Gleason. You talk about Jackie Gleason in your book as well. Yes. Jackie Gleason, uh, my parents, when I was a uh, little kid, uh, they never missed a show. You know, the Honeymooners and the Jackie Gleason Hour and so forth from Miami and the whole thing. So I knew that was something very important to them. Of course, I was of a younger generation and was more interested in some of the newer type acts and so forth. But I still like Jackie Gleason, don't get me wrong. He's the greatest of all time. That's why they call him the great one. But the Gentries, uh, we were playing down in Florida, and uh, the Hills of Embry has a golf classic. It's called the Jackie Gleason Hills of Embry Golf Classic down there. And so our guitar player, Wes Stafford of the Gentries, he said, uh, my cousin lives next door to Jackie Gleason. I thought he was joking. I thought, oh, yeah, sure. He said, no, it's real. He said, and plus, uh, she's invited us over to eat dinner tonight and come out early and hang around and whatever. And so I said, I don't believe you. Well, I thought he was pulling my leg and pulling a rib on me, you know. And so I said, okay, I'll go with you. And sure enough, they lived right next door to Jackie Gleason. He didn't have any eight, 18-foot fences uh, like in Hollywood. You know, I lived in Hollywood for quite a while, too, and worked with a lot of great icons. But uh, he was just wide open there. Of course, it was a gated community, you know. But uh, he he lived in the basement, and his wife lived upstairs. They didn't get along too well. And uh, so he had the man cave all fixed up and what have you. But one, so I was looking at, we ate lunch, and I looked out the window, and I look out there, and there's Jackie walking a little dog that didn't bigger than a minute, like a little shih tzu or some sort of dog like that or, or a little poodle. And uh, so I thought, oh, wow. I said, I'm not going to miss this opportunity. So I ran outside and ran around back and went out in the backyard. And uh, I said, Mr. Gleason, how are you? And he went, hello, son, how are you? And, you know, I said, uh, you know, my mom and dad are such great fans of yours. And uh, my guitar player in the gentries told me that, uh, you know, his cousin lived next door to you. I didn't believe him, but I sure do now. And anyway, so we chit-chatted there a minute. And uh, I said, I told him, uh, like I told in the book, I said, you know, I, uh, I really loved all the pool shooting that you did in uh, the, uh, with, what was the movie? Uh, Hustler. Uh, with, uh, yeah, The Hustle. Yeah, I get confused with the color of money. Uh, 
the hustle. And I said, uh, now I've read that you've beaten Willie Moscone and also you've beaten uh, Minnesota Fats. He said, that's all true, son. And I said, wow. I said, well, I took, for my PE requirement in college, Mr. Gleason, I took billiards as my, one of my courses. He said, and then that just led into, he invited me to come in and shoot some nine ball. So I went in there and did it. But I was pretty quiet through the whole thing, like I said in the book. I mean, how do you talk to an icon like Jackie Gleason? And Plus, when you're shooting pool, you don't talk to, you know, take the other person's uh, mind off what they're gaming or whatever. But, I mean, I was higher than 37 kites uh, just on life right there, you know, being spending some time with him in his man cave basement. But uh, I never forgot that he also drove a Citroen, in one of those three-wheel uh, French cars. And I was impressed by that because I've always been a car nut myself, too. But he was really an eloquent person, a very kind uh, man. And had I known at the time that supposedly that Richard Nixon took him up to Area uh, uh, Area 51 or Dulles Air Force Base or wherever he went and showed him some alien bodies that had supposedly been, uh, you know, retrieved or whatever, that, that's always people say that's a myth. But I come to believe I think there's probably something to it. But I didn't know that at that time. Uh, that story didn't start coming out until later in the 80s. But uh, Jackie Gleason is just uh, a, one of the most talented people that's ever lived in show business, without a doubt. And there is another example of my life in heaven town, just uh, falling in and over into something that's bigger than I'll ever be, that's for sure. So that was a pretty exciting thing, of course. I was excited because Dean Martin uh, was coming to that event as well. And I believe Sammy Davis was coming too. And uh, maybe even Frank Sinatra at the time, but I couldn't stay. We had to perform that night. So after that was all over, we went back over to next door to Wes's cousin's home and hung around a while, but then we had to get back in time to perform that night. So, but it was really an experience and a half and it's almost like a dream to me. I, I, I keep thinking back to this and I go, was that really he, or was that just a hologram, or you know what was all that? <laughs> but it's just another, you know, another exciting thing that happened uh, just on the spur of the moment. Well, you know, you make reference to the title of your book a lot. You say another example of your life at Heaven Town, and some of the other names that just looking through the book that I saw were, you know, Devo, REM, Prince, Farrah Fawcett, Tom Selleck, Gene Simmons. I can't list all the names. I mean, you've got a lot of examples of. Uh, you know, your life in heaven town, but the theme of our show here, wrestling memories, I'd like to talk a little bit more, get more back into the wrestling for a few minutes. And that's uh, kind of when you got started with wrestling music, I guess I'd say was you and Jimmy Hart helping Jerry, the King Lawler record a, uh, a single that I guess he actually sold at his shows. Yes. Uh, that was uh, one of the first things we did was the handsome uh, Jimmy Valiant theme. And uh, so, but Lawler, when we were doing working on that, Jimmy and I, Lawler didn't want him to do that first. He wanted to be the big man, uh, which he is the king of Memphis, of course, next to Elvis. And so we we came up with a song. Well, uh, let me get back to how it all came together. Uh, I got a call one day. It was a conference call from Jimmy and uh, and uh, Jerry. Jerry says, "Hey, McGuire, uh, I'd like for you to come down. I, I want to do a song that I can sell ringside on a forty-five. You know." I went, great. Uh, what do you got in mind? <laughs> he said, well, I don't know. I said, I'm going to leave that up to you and Jimmy. And I said, well, that sounds great. Uh, he said, uh, uh, now I'll fly you down first class. 
uh, I'll put you up at the hotel. I said, no, no need to put me up at the hotel, uh, Jerry. I stayed with Jimmy and his family. I'm just like one of the family over there, and I'd rather stay with them than sit in a boring hotel room. He went, okay, well, that's all right, but I don't mind to put you up at the hotel. And I went, no, that's okay. I'll just stay with Jimmy and save a little money for you. And he said, uh, well, uh, what do you need to come down and do that? I said, well, if you're going to fly me down and all that, uh, I don't know, Jerry. I, I'm going to need to have to think about that. And then Lawler says, how about $1,000? I went, okay, I'll be down. <laughs> and uh, so I, the following week, I flew down, and uh, we picked out a song. We, we took Breaking Up is Hard to Do by Neil Sadaka, but we did a disco version of it. <clears throat> and we thought that would fit Jerry good. Breaking Up is Hard to Do. And he liked the idea, and he said, great. So that's what we did. We went to Phillips Recording again and uh, recorded the theme. And they pressed up the 45s. And to my knowledge, that was the first wrestling record ever sold at matches. Uh, this was before WWF was high rolling and so on. They were just a local promotion up there in New Jersey and New York, you know. And uh, so it really kind of started with the King. And I always tell people that Jerry the King Lawler really gave Jimmy Hart and myself our start in what we do. Well, definitely you and uh, Jimmy Hart have a career and, you know, speaking of Jimmy Hart, I got a chance to meet him in Vegas at Cauliflower Alley Club a few years back. And not only that, I mean, friendly guy, you stop, oh, can I get a picture? Well, yeah, maybe let's get a picture. I mean, he's good with all that. But yes. the other question, yes, the other thing about this is Jimmy Hart doesn't age. The man does not age, and his hair still looks amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He used to tape his hair down when we played in the Gentries, you know. Uh, they didn't have all the hair products and stuff you have today. Uh, so what he would do is, is he would uh, take his shower and wash his hair, and then he would tape it down with scotch tape to where it would form, you know, the way he wanted his hair to lie and whatever. And it took him like, you know, two hours just to get his hair the way he wanted with taping it down with tape and using a hairdryer with tape holding it down. But, uh, yeah, Jimmy, he is very much ageless. And uh, I think that the reason that we're kind of that way is the music has really given us a, extra lease on life, I believe, because we've had something to live for. People need something to live for in their life, you know, more than just the mundane day-to-day uh, -day existence. You know, you need to have something to look forward to in life. And fortunately for Jimmy Hart and myself, we had music and then we had wrestling. So uh, it's all been good for us. Uh, like Jimmy says, and I say too, we never planned anything. We've just kind of floated right on through life into these open door situations and at least we had the ability to uh, produce something that people enjoyed. That's the whole gist of the whole matter here. Now, obviously, most of your uh, musical following uh, with Jimmy and the music was, as Glenn said in the intro, in the WWF. You came in, Jimmy had recorded um, Eat Your Heart Out, Rick Springfield, for the wrestling album. Now, were you part of that? Uh, uh, were no. you part of that with the recording of that? No, we came in on the together on the second album, the Pile Driver. Pile Driver. Uh, yeah, and uh, they mainly had covers on the other albums and whatever. And so anyway, uh, David Wolf, who was Cindy Lauper's boyfriend, and also he was an executive with Columbia Records. He wanted Jimmy and myself to do all the material for the album and any future albums, but Vince, being the uh, consummate producer that he is 
He said, no, we can't let any one or two people monopolize, you know, the albums or whatever. Though, from 1988 to about 1994, Jimmy and I had 96% of all WWF music. Uh, Jim Johnson, who had been with Vince since they were just a small outfit, you know, doing regional wrestling up in uh, around New York, Syracuse area and whatever. Uh, he had been with them uh, from when Vince's dad was, uh, Vince Sr., you know, was running the company. And uh, he'd done some music for them. They had some other people did some things too. But Johnson got an offer to do music for uh, Deep Space Nine, a science fiction TV show that was real popular uh, back in the day. And so he couldn't keep up with the influx of uh, all the talent that was coming in because he was tied up doing that. And you must understand that WWF wasn't uh, exactly the ultimate rolling machine that it is today. It was just starting to become that. And so he didn't have time to keep up with the input of uh, talent and so forth. So that's how Jimmy and I actually kind of took over the whole music thing for WWF there uh, through those years, uh, through the decades there. Uh, but don't don't misunderstand me. Uh, Jim Johnson uh, did great work. And uh, I really, the my favorite thing that Jim ever did was uh, the Undertaker thing. I think that's a fabulous thing. But anyway, so we had the opportunity uh, to do that, and we stepped in there, and, buddy, we let her rip, as you can see. Well, definitely. Now, when you're uh, – this is where I'm kind of getting because I love the creative side of uh, things in wrestling. When you're coming up with a theme, you know, you know like, and some of these themes are, like, iconic. You had Cool Cocky Bad for, you know, the Honky Tonk Man, obviously the Demolition theme. Shawn Michaels, that's, that's the one I want to talk about a little bit. Is, but when you're working on these themes, and you and Jimmy are kind of collaborating and coming up with the music – how do you come up with the idea or the hook for, you know, that wrestler? Cause each of these songs is such a, you know, individual, each one's a different style. It's, and it's so catered to that individual person. I'm just curious kind of what the creative process is in creating well, a theme song of such magnitude. Sure. I'd be glad to tell you, uh, basically Jimmy would call and say, McGuire, we got so-and-so coming in. So, you need to come to Cleveland and take a look. And, you know, so what I would do is I would go, first of all, and I would look at the wrestler. I'd see, watch him do his match. I'd, you know, watch, see what his gimmick is, what his outfit looked like, you know, all the criteria, what makes this character, you know. Then I would go home or what have you, and I would sit there and think on it for a day or so. And then Jimmy and I would get back together at the next venue or whatever. And I say, Jimmy, I think I've got an idea for so-and-so, you know, whatever wrestler. And he'd listen to it, and he goes, sounds good. Maybe we ought to do it a little faster. He makes some suggestions like that. And uh, he would usually, Jimmy would usually come up with the hook for any of the lyrics and whatever. But I primarily did all the music, uh, and Jimmy would sit there and give his input on it. But Jimmy doesn't really play any instruments or anything. He, uh, but what a creative genius. He knows everything he hears. And if you hear something that sounds like it's in the right genre, he goes, that's it, we're on. Then he'll sit there and come up with some lyrics or do whatever. But, you know, I did most of the heavy lifting. I, I wrote all the music pretty much, and he did lyrics and approved of what I came up with. And then we kind of bounce ideas off each other, like, well, let's see, Sean, he's a sexy boy. He's a, oh, he's a sexy boy. Uh, yeah, okay, sexy boy, all right. Then I went, hey, listen to this, Jimmy. And I went, 
dun 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 And he went, Yep, that's it, that's it, that's it, keep going. And then we just this stuff just kinda came out of nowhere in that way, you know, like but we were we were always together, uh, you know, throwing ideas off of each other and what have you. So it was definitely a collaborative effort. Uh but uh, you know, I played most all the instruments on majority of all those themes. Uh, I produced it, and Jimmy uh, produced it with me. And uh, but together we were able to the energy that Jimmy Hart gave me allowed me to come up with a lot of different things that I may not have come up with just by myself in a room without Jimmy Hart, if you understand. Oh, definitely. I'm looking just kind of like the list in, in your book. You've got a discography, and it's got the wrestling themes. And well, I'm not going to read the whole list because it's rather lengthy. But just for our listeners, kind of information. You got Sexy Boy, which could possibly be considered probably one of probably the most iconic song on this list, because Shawn Michaels still uses it now, twenty something years later. But you know, Honky Tonk Man, you've got the Common Man Boogie for Dusty Rhodes. I think everybody remembers that one, obviously. Together, the Macho Man and Miss Elizabeth wedding song. I think everybody remembers. You know, that still gets played at weddings today by you know wrestling fans and everything. But you got Owen Hart's High Energy. You've got I'm the Mountie. We've got all American, all American boys by the fabulous Rougeau brothers, and I mean the list is just goes on and on. And I don't think a lot of our listeners may realize that you know you're the guy that wrote the music for this because for a lot of wrestling fans in the '80s, '90s on, this was kind of you know this is what we grew up on. These are the songs that we remember. And now in a day where everybody uses you know a certain band's music, and the, there's no real specific themes much anymore for wrestlers. They use other bands' music, and then they get the credits for it. But, you know, you created a large body of music that's going to be around forever as long as there's wrestling fans. So this stuff is classic. Well, I appreciate you saying that. And, you know, I just wanted to come up with what fit the wrestler. I didn't, you know, a lot of musicians want to do what they're, you know, it's mainly based on their own ego, which worked fine for the Beatles and the Stones and some of the greatest Prince and some of the greatest of all time. But wrestling's different. I didn't, you know, we wrote the music to fit the character, plain and simple. We didn't write the music to fit us. We wrote the music to fit the character, and that's the key to it. And a lot of musicians and, and people who have done uh, wrestling themes recently and whatever, they've come up with some great stuff. Uh, CFO Money, for instance, uh, that Finn Balor theme, I called the office for the first time I heard that and told them, I said, hey, this right here is a great theme. I said, uh, these guys... Uh, you know, are going to do you a good job. But I just heard recently that they're not doing any music for WWE anymore. But uh, I was impressed with that, and I called and told them that. But uh, I thought that fit the character great. But unfortunately, it's, it's not easy to continually write a theme that completely fits the, every character. And I think a lot of musicians today, uh, the thing that helped us to do it and have different styles, like you said, and so forth, was we were able to fit the character perfect, I think. And that's because of two people, of, well, three people, the character of themselves, and then Jimmy Hart and myself. You know, it's a three-way thing there. And we just wanted to create what fit the wrestler, not what and tried to impress people with us, with what we wanted for us. We wrote what fit them. All right, well, I'm going to pass the mic back over to Glenn. I'm sure he's got a few questions 
waiting in the wings for you. Abs- absolutely here. Uh, I, you know, we got about <clears throat> 10 to 15 minutes left of the program here today. First of all, I'm going to extend an invite to have you come on here uh, in the, uh, sometime in the not too distant future, because I think we, we've got uh, at least enough for another uh, hour long episode uh, at the very least, because boy, there's just so much to talk about with you. And you talked about the, the wrestlers themes and, you, you know, making the theme for the right wrestler. But this was something that you didn't, uh, you just pick up uh, watching them on TV. You actually were out on the road for a while and you had a chance to kind of dig in and, and get involved with and see the camaraderie and take part in the camaraderie of, of wrestlers. And you got to uh, be involved with some of the stuff that they do. I mean, of course, with wrestling, there's always tales of dry, road, t- road stories and ribs. Now, what can, can you tell us a little bit about getting on the road and, and about you know, you know that finding that camaraderie and also some of the hijinks that did evolve on the road? And who were some of the, the guys that you enjoyed uh, you know being around, whether it be in the locker room or in a vehicle? Oh, I loved I loved all the guys. They were just really great, and we were lucky to be a part of what the golden modern era of wrestling. Uh, first of all, it's just the timing was right and everything, but. Uh, Randy Savage was a very close friend of mine, and, and I miss Randy so much, not to mention the fans and whoever. But uh, Randy and I, we traveled on the road. Uh, Jimmy and Randy and I would ride in the vehicles occasionally together and got to spend time with Randy and just a wonderful person, wonderful person. And uh, though I, I didn't write any music for Randy, but uh, he used Pomp and Circumstance. Uh, they didn't have to pay any uh, money for that theme because that's a public domain theme. So that was pretty smart on their part. But they had to pay us pretty well to do all these other things. <laughs> but uh, uh, one of the stories that sticks in my mind pretty much was uh, Andre the Giant. I, Andre liked me very much so because uh, I did card tricks and stuff, and he loved to play cards and all that. But uh, he brought his girlfriend. Uh, he had a girlfriend that he was dating, a woman that was the uh, weather anchor in Cleveland. And uh, WWF was doing a show in Cleveland. So she came down. And so Andre came over to me and said, Jimmy McGuire, would you please sit with my girlfriend? I don't want the boys around her. And I said, sure, Andre, I'd be glad to. And uh, <clears throat> so Jimmy came up to me and said, gosh, McGuire, for Andre to ask you to do something like that, it's unbelievable. He wouldn't ask any of the boys or any of us to do something like that. And he said, he really trusts you, whatever. And I said, well, you know, what can I say? So I'm going to do it. So we sat in the wings and watched the matches, and I sat with his girlfriend. And he came back out after he finished his match and came through, and he shook my hand and patted me on the back and thanked me for sitting with her. And, uh, you know, Andre was just a beautiful, beautiful person in uh, real life. Most of the fans just knew Andre from ringside, but I'm here to tell you that Andre had the kindest heart of any human you would ever know in your whole life. And just a wonderful person, but he's very particular about who he let come in uh, uh, back, you know, to be around him. Uh, he he didn't like Randy because Randy always used that baby oil, you know, and used to fuss at him all the time, <laughs> you know, and say, no baby oil. I think Hulk said something about it on one of his interviews. But that's true. I and mean, I was there when those words were said. I was just fortunate that uh, to know Andre and, and all the guys and everything, and uh, not to mention uh, later on working with Hulk and everything in the wrestling boot band and writing American made for him for WCW and, and all that. It's just unbelievable. And Roddy Piper, he was a great guy too, but he was a different individual. Uh, sometimes he'd come in and he'd be just the most friendliest guy in the world. 
Other times he'd come in, you wouldn't want to say a word to him. He was really a different individual, but what a great wrestler and a great guy too. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I, I traveled all around uh, with all the guys and, you know, we had a lot of fun times and stories. There's some stories I can't tell because they might be a little too risque, nothing real bad or anything, but uh, there's so many laughs. For instance, I'll, I'll tell one real quick. Uh, when we went to England for SummerSlam in 91, uh, Dave Hebner and uh, myself and Jimmy and uh, Jacques Rougeau, we decided we were going to go down into the Soho district. So uh, we always heard all about how seedy it was. And they said, oh, it's nothing more than a tourist trap now. But anyway, we went down there and they had these girls dancing around in glass plated windows behind them in bikinis and, you know, asking you to come on in. And they were saying, if you want to take photos, they charge so much money. Well, this was a good one. So Hedner said, let's go in and see what it is. All right. So we went in and the woman, she said, she's, she had on actually like a mini skirt or something. She said, I'm going to go back here and change into something more comfortable. We thought, wow, that looks pretty comfortable right there. And we were sitting there looking at each other like a couple of jabronis, like what's going to happen? Well, nothing happened. She went through this door, and after about 15 minutes, she didn't come back. Hebner stepped up, Dave did, and pulled on the door, and it wouldn't open. It was locked. And and he said, well, McGuire, we've been had. He said she took the $20 for some photographs with her or whatever, and we got nothing, so let's go. And so we, there was one door, one way out of this gimmick. So I told, I told Dave, I said, Dave, should have known better. He said, well, we've never been down here before, so we didn't know. But anyway, that was kind of laughable. But uh, <laughs> I sure enjoyed the England trip. Uh, while I was over there, I, did, I forgot to tell it in the book uh, at SummerSlam. Uh, I went by Air Studios. That's George Martin's studio. And I got to play the grand piano uh, that Paul McCartney used on many of the Beatle hits mm. and also on uh, Maybe I'm Amazed. Oh, that, that, I went that's to Studio great. A. They took me in and allowed me, uh, uh, while well, I was playing for about 10 minutes and the guy ran the studio came and said, it sounds dynamite. Just keep playing. I said, okay, I will. And I must've played that grand piano for about an hour. And, awesome. uh, so that was another adventure in my life in heaven town right there. And, uh, really something the English people are so kind and nice to me. And then I went to Apple <coughs> studios also. And, uh, BBC was, uh, orchestra was in studio a, but they took me down to Studio B, which is called the Dungeon, and that was where the that final Beatle movie was made, where they were down there and where they played on the roof and everything, you know. Mm-hmm. Let it be. Uh, so I got to see what the Dungeon really was like, and then the old upright piano was in the corner. I went over and played it a little bit. So uh, I took advantage of it, but who knew that wrestling would take me to George Martin's studio and all these other vistas that were doors that were open for me through wrestling. It's unbelievable. Oh, absolutely. You know, we uh, we have time for one more segment. I'm going to bring Mike back in because Mike was, a, 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 as, as a, was I, was a very avid viewer of uh, Thunder in Paradise. So I know Mike wants to get in at least one or two questions uh, in our last segment sure. today. De- definitely a Thunder in Paradise fan. I, I never missed an episode of that. Once again, you know, that was, you know, Hogan in his time, but it was a fun show. You didn't expect a lot out of it, but it was, it was just a fun show. I did not realize, once again, did not realize that you, you were actually on Thunder in Paradise. You and Jimmy, well, knew Jimmy was, but did not realize that you were a, a character on uh, Thunder in Paradise. That's right. I was character tone deaf. And what was cool about it is, is they allowed me to pick my own wardrobe out of the wardrobe uh, truck. And uh, really something, I actually uh, went down, uh, they called, and Jimmy called, rather, and said, 
they need an end theme. They've got some sort of opening theme, but they don't have an end theme. And they're wanting something kind of reggae-ish. Or whatever. I said, no problem. So I put together a little reggae rift and uh, flew down to Florida. And there's Bone, uh, Bonin and Schwartz, uh, Greg Bonin and, and Schwartz and the three guys, uh, you know, that did Baywatch. They did our show, too and the producers. And so anyway, I flew down there and uh, set up the stuff and uh, Burke Bonin and Schwartz came in and I met them and they sat down right in front of us, eight feet from our face. And I had my keyboard set up and then I had the tracks already pre-recorded of the other instruments. And then I played along in real time and then Jimmy sang it in real time to them. So we were performing to the producers of Baywatch and also Thunder in Paradise right there, right in, fr- at our, in front of our feet. And so we played through it, and I could tell they were they were jubilant. They were jumping around, you know, the whole time we were playing through it. And we got to the end of it. They leapt out of their seats and ran up and hugged us and said, that's it, that's it. And then Greg Bonin said, fire that reggae band that we've been using out on the beach. They're, they're over. And I went, wow. And so he, they shook our hands and said, we love the theme, and we want you to do feature music for the, some of the feature music for the show as well. And uh sounded great. And so Greg Bonin asked me, he said, McGuire, how long were you planning to be down here? And I said, well, I, I brought enough uh, socks and underwear to last for maybe three days or something, but then I'm heading back. He said, no, you're not. He said, you're a character on the show. I went, what? Hello? Testing one, two. Is this real? <laughs> he said, yep, you're a character. That's it. So report uh, down to... Uh, you know, the soundstage uh, Monday morning at uh, 6 a.m. for makeup and hair and whatever. And I went, sure thing. So here we are once again, my life in heaven town. I just took a reggae theme down to demonstrate for a, a TV show called Thunder in Paradise starring Hulk Hogan and Chris Lemon and Carol Alt. And uh, next thing I know, I'm on the show as a character. So, uh, yeah, it was just unbelievable. It was one thing after another. And so I wound up spending the whole summer down there uh, at Disney where we filmed uh, all the episodes and what have you. And uh, it was really a fun show and a great show. And the only reason that the show didn't keep going is because uh, Hulk was asked to come to WCW and go back into wrestling, which he loves even more than acting, you know, at the time and so forth. So, uh, but I wish that we could have kept doing the show because uh, it was so much fun and, it was really a cool show and not to mention how the photography, Jimmy Pergola was the, uh, Panaflex, uh, photographer for the show, you know, and, uh, he, he's the guy that, uh, did, uh, in cold blood, you know, back in the sixties, uh, a great cinematographer, great guy. And he was older than I'm sure he's passed away in the meantime now, but, uh, it was great working with him an icon, you know, the business like that. And, just goes on and on and on. You know, Hulk, not to mention thanking Hulk, you know, so much for including me. Hulk could have picked anybody, but he chose Jimmy Hart and then he picked me. So there we were and we jumped around and did our music and, uh, Thunder in Paradise is the second biggest syndicated cable TV show in history, right behind Baywatch, even though it only ran one season because Hulk wanted to go back to wrestling. Now, like Glenn said, we're definitely going to have you back on in the near future, we haven't even begun to like talk about some of the other stories in your book. But before you leave, I do have to ask about this because when I read this in the book, I read the whole chapter and the fan in me came out. I got excited by this before. We, let's, I want to end the, uh, the interview a little bit and talk about Hulk rules, the album that came out. 
everybody remembers it. There are some songs that, you know, were fun to listen to, kind of pop. There are a couple songs that you kind of remembered, maybe not in a good light, but I'd like to talk a little bit about Hulk Rules because one of those albums, that it's one of those that it's, it's so bad, it's good on, on some aspects, but there are there is actually great music on it as well. Yeah, well, it was a lot of fun. We, you know, we had, again, we had to come up with stuff that fit Hulk's image, uh, you know, and, and it was all about Hulk. It, it wasn't so much about us. It was, uh, we're a part of it, but, you know, Hulk is the main man there, and we had to devise an entire album of material that fit his motif, and I think that's what we did, and there's a wide variety of material on, on there. Uh, I think one thing that kind of shocked people was is they couldn't quite wrap their head around the idea that Hulk Hogan has a band and is singing and rapping and carrying all. It kind of was way over the top for a lot of people. But, uh, you know, we got to number uh, 10 uh, on the children's charts uh, with that album. So the kids liked it. And that's who we were really aiming at. at. And uh, that, by the way, that was recorded at Morris Sound Recording in Tampa, which is a world-class studio as well. And uh, we, we had to comprise all that to fit Hulkster. But I thought we did some pretty good stuff on there. There's some jabronious type things on there, like you say, but I think overall, uh, if a person really takes time to listen to the album a little closer and separates yourself from the Hulk Hogan total image and just listens to what it, what it's supposed to do and be, I think it worked out pretty good, you know, considering everything. Well, I got to say, I have a son, eight years old, so obviously not around when that album came out, but one of his songs he used to have me sing for him at bedtime was uh, the Wrestling Boot Traveling Band. Yeah. That was one of his lullabies. That was one of his lullabies when he was little. In my car and headed for the sunshine state. Yeah, there you go. It's kind, of, it's kind of a Jimmy Buffett sort of feel. That's what Jimmy said. We need, let's come up with something that's kind of a Jimmy Buffett kind of a style. And I went okay. And so there's what I came up with. And you did the lyrics and bingo, boingo. There you go. Well, it's time to wrap up things uh, for this week's edition of Wrestling Memories. Uh, Hurricane J.J. McGuire. Man, I, again, Mike mentioned it. I mentioned it earlier. we got to have you back on the program, man. There just seems like we, we, we got a good start on this. There's going to be a lot more things we can discuss that we didn't get to uh, this time around. Definitely the invitation is open. Oh, definitely. I'll be more than happy to come back. I appreciate you guys, you know, all the kind words and everything that you've said and it, it really is super appreciative thank you very much the book is my life in heaven town our guest uh, this hour was jj mcguire the author whose story we heard here on this edition of wrestling memories then and now check out his book uh, co-written by john cosper you can go to john's site uh, www.eatsleepwrestle.com and you can also find it at Amazon.com. A big thank you to J.J. McGuire for being on the program this week. J.J.'s book, again, My Life in Heaventown. Thank you, J.J., as well as my co-host, the Grizzle Vet, Mike McCurdy. For Glenn Broggett, this has been Wrestling Memories Then and Now.